Legend has it that the history of tea dates back nearly 5,000 years to ancient China, where the medicinal benefits of boiling fresh leaves in water were said to be discovered. Over the last few hundred years in particular, though, the cultivation and consumption of tea has spread the world over through a combination of colonization and global trade. In many ways, even more than coffee, tea has shaped cultures, traditions, national identities, and more the world over. And yet, today in our own homes and in our backyards, tea is still a reason for people to get together to honor their cultures and identities, to identify and develop communities, and to share something that altogether feels warming, nourishing, and truly loving. In an age with record high levels of loneliness and social isolation, could the tea that we drink possibly be a part of the solution? From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the perceptions, stories, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. Okay, so admittedly, it might be a bit of a stretch to suggest that tea could cure all of the social woes in the world today, but that doesn't mean that tea doesn't have its part to play. Here to talk all things tea, community, culture, and connection is Amber Jackson. She's the owner and chief operating officer of the Black Leaf Tea and Culture Shop, an online loose leaf tea company. Amber is not only on a mission to promote wellness through her teas, she's building a platform and creates spaces to engage the community to encourage connection and especially to celebrate black culture. Amber hosts monthly networking and social events for young black professionals in the area. And she also facilitates a discussion series called Tea Talk to dialogue with fellow entrepreneurs and change makers on topics like being black in academia, the importance of therapy and breaking down traumas, and racism in the hospitality industry. The Black Leaf Tea and Culture Shop is a Best of Rhode Island 2022 winner. Amber was named on the Who to Watch list in 2022 as well by Providence Monthly Magazine. And she also wrote the cover story on the state of Black-owned business in Rhode Island in Hey Roadie Magazine this past February. Amber, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you've been making waves, and that's the only, I promise, Rhode Island pun, Ocean State pun, <laughs> that will weave into this conversation. But you've been making waves as an entrepreneur in Southern New England area uh, since you founded the Black Leaf Tea and Culture Company in 2019. But I understand mm-hmm. that Rhode Island isn't your original home. Uh, and because all Rhode Islanders, are, I, I have found, are very interested in finding out why <laughs> and how someone that's not from Rhode Island has ended up in Rhode Island or, or come to Rhode Island, maybe is a more positive way to put it. Um, how did the tea entrepreneur with whom we're speaking today come to Providence, having grown up originally on the south sh- side, uh, excuse me, the south side of Chicago? <laughs> Yeah, I moved to Rhode Island November of 2017, which feels so wild because it's, yeah, it's been five years now. It's just crazy to think about. But I moved here for my job in Browns. I moved because there's a check with my name on it. And so I uh, <laughs> I moved here for my job working in athletics. I had worked in athletics at Brown University, but um, mm. actually, I, academically, my entire academic career is in food science. Um, so I, people always ask, oh, are you nutritionist? Like, no, those are not the same thing. I actually worked in athletic business, uh, my entire professional career, but academically my degrees are in food science. Very cool. And so what, what is the difference between a food scientist or someone who studies food science and being mm-hmm. a nutritionalist? Could you just give us like a, even a general breakdown? Yeah, for sure. So nutrition focuses heavily on lifestyle, statistics, and programming. So a lot of programs as far as like WIC, um, EBT, uh, community programming as well. But a lot of it comes down to lifestyle and moderation and the things that affect those, uh, those variables. Where food science is an interdisciplinary study. So it's everything from food engineering, food chemistry, food law, uh, proteins, flavoring, product development. So it's a very wide range of what that is, but it's definitely more technical compared to nutrition, which is definitely more based on lifestyle and um, lifestyle and also like just, you know, community effects on the individual people. And so a lot of the work that we do in food science, while my specific area focuses on product development, 
um, which I, I chose that major when I was 12 years old. So, uh, you know, being from Chicago, I initially wanted to be a chef. And um, Chicago is a James Beard Michelin star city. So it's incredibly competitive. And so my mom's like, oh my God, I need a job. <laughs> so um, we didn't always have cable growing up, but we did. I still love watching Food Network and particularly uh, Good Eats. It's a show by Alton Brown. And I loved how he broke down the science of cooking and flavor and food in itself. And so I legit chose food science when I was 12. And just wrote it out through grad school. <laughs> um, but I, in my mind, I was like, I want to be, I want to play with food. I want to play with flavor. I want to work in, I knew exactly what it was. I want to work in General Mills as an R&D scientist. And then I learned in grad school, my second year in grad school, I was like, oh, you actually should have been a corporate chef because you hate being in labs. <laughs> it is is I enjoy the technical piece of it. I enjoy the science of it, but it's extremely isolating. And I need to be around people. I'm not the most extroverted person. And I will say, I know how to turn it on and turn it off. But we just in a lab for hours by yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's not that fun. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, that's where I, where I was with that. I love that. That's so fascinating. And, and you're right. I mean... Something that seems so essential, like I, I grew up in, a, in an Italian-American household, so mm. food and food culture and food history and tradition are so baked into like the stories that we tell. I said in a recent episode that I'm pretty sure my connection to my Italian heritage is just based almost only on the food and how we story through the food that we eat and share. So it can be, as, as you yeah. know, food and can be so evocative of like social connection and our personal histories and our individual histories. But like you say, like being, what'd you say? It was a, a, a corporate engineer um, of, of food mm. for a big company, a corporation like General Mills would be the exact opposite. It would be extremely isolating and probably yes. not altogether very fun. Yeah. I was like, oh, I should have been a corporate chef working in a test kitchen, not in a lab. Uh, but after, you know, medium school, since at that point, I think the second year I was, I was straight through. So I was 22, my second year in grad school. So pretty much being in school my entire life was just like, oh, I, and there was a fork in the room and I did, I was not knowledgeable of the other fork of the other lane. And I just went straight for the one that I knew of, which is common for everybody. You know, you know what you know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And and you mentioned in your answer there, Amber, about your, you know, choosing this career path initially at age 12, I'll give you a lot of kudos for the depth of self-knowledge you seem to possess at age 12 that, <laughs> that I am still searching for in my in my mid to late 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but kudos to you. Um, but but I know, Amber, that, you know, you you mentioned growing up you know, on the south side of Chicago and it being such like a, mm-hmm. a food city, Chicago as a whole. In the Hey Roadie Magazine article that you wrote on, uh, wrote recently uh, on the state of Black-owned businesses in Rhode Island, you made this really interesting point that was very educational for for me, as I often self-disclose, just so people know, listening in podcast form, identifying as a white man, um, about the popularity today of what we call side hustles and like side hustling Mm -hmm. online and having an online business or like working multiple jobs, um, but especially having like an entrepreneurial gig that we operate, you know, that's maybe not our primary business. And you wrote that while this idea is so popular in the online world in which we live today, it's, and it's, it's more commonly like esteemed and valued in, in a large swath of, you know, American and I, I would add like whiter American society that for, for you, it wasn't uncommon to see side hustlers in a black community like the South side of Chicago. And that that was something that was really kind of like understood and fundamental. You wrote that yeah. it was a, a pillar of the black community growing up. Um, I'm wondering how you witnessed that kind of entrepreneurship growing up and, and if and how it influenced your mindset and outlook. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was everywhere. And so being on the South side, of course, the South side is Chicago. It's the third, third largest city in the, in the country. So that's a very large area. So, you know, we, we consider our neighborhood more so than the area. So I'm from Inglewood. And so being in that space, like, we had the candy lady on our block. And she, she in the summertime, she had her table out there. And she would be selling snow cones, penny candy, chips. Um, even for me, like... I, <laughs> Um, I'm grown now, so I can't get in trouble for it. But no one went to school in their area in Chicago. And I'm telling Chicago, applying for high schools, same as applying for college. Like we have over 150 high schools in the city alone. And so um, for me, I would have to take, when I was in high school, my freshman year, excuse me, 
I lived in Bronzeville at the time, so I took a bus to the train station, the train from 43rd Street down to 95th Street, and then the bus from there to my school. So it took me about an hour and a half to get to school in the morning. I don't have to get back home. And the, this, I, the, if you've been in Chicago, the red line, once you get past about 40, 43rd Street, is always very interesting. <laughs> but I can read a book of the things I've seen on the red line. But, you know, you always had a guy on there. He had like CDs, DVDs, oils, like bath towels, socks, like anything you can think of. They would have it. Um, you know, going to the hair salon, going to the barbershop, you had someone come in there selling CDs and DVDs, bootlegs, whatever. But um, the idea that you can make money in a sense that you just needed money, but also understanding the economic repercussions of those areas. In my neighborhood, this is an economically disproportionate area. So whether, you know, I'm not concerned about the person selling even bootlegs and those type of police priority is illegal, but it's not drugs. <laughs> it's not, you know, so that's the only thing is like, hey, these are things that people that don't have opportunities that are making money because they have to. And so in the sense where some people are concerned about, this is a conversation I had with my friends, actually, he's also black, but he grew up very privileged, so very opposite from my life. Where he was like, yeah, in the black community, we just need financial literacy. And I had to explain to him what does financial literacy mean to someone that has no money? <laughs> if my priority is to make it to not even next week, but tomorrow, my concern is survival, not literacy, financial literacy, not thriving. It's just making it. And that's what a lot of people had to do with side hustling and hustling, period, simply to make it. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 Privilege that's embedded in an idea like literacy uh, or financial mm -hmm. literacy really, really comes out, especially when, like you said, if people are just trying to survive and, and get through it day to day, the financial motivation is like, mm -hmm. what are people buying? Like, what's available for me to be the catalyst of, of that sale yeah. and that, that profit? Um, you yeah. Know. So, what do I like? Like, so like I said, like, yeah. why do so what, you what I care? Alter, what what is the term? Go ahead. I know you find this, it's just really breaking down like what does the term financially financial literacy mean to someone that has no money? <laughs> yeah, that says it all. That says it all. I think you you summed it up really beautifully. Yeah, and, and Amber, I also wanted to ask you because you wrote in that same article, uh, and this is a quote, you said, for many, the black entrepreneurship experience is an act of our, of love for ourselves and our community. But then you added saying, mm -hmm. uh, it isn't the smoothest path. So if we transition from mm -hmm. then to now, you know, the roots of your entrepreneurship growing up on the south side of Chicago, and now you living here uh, in, in Rhode Island, um, the makeup of Rhode Island, even Providence is, is much more white than Chicago or the south side of Chicago. And I wonder mm -hmm. what the experience was like for you being a black entrepreneur and starting a small business in a place like Rhode Island that is is pretty predominantly white through and through. Um, did you find that your racial identity and your, I should, you know, maybe your, your also your gender identity had like an overt, um, I mean, it always, it always has an experience because it's the only experience that you'll ever have. But I guess if you had any experiences in building your business from the get go that felt like you were really being shown your identities um, or uh, being impacted by them in a, in a more quote unquote white area. Um, I honestly, and this is solely my own experience, um, I would not say it hindered me in any, any kind of way, including my gender. Um, I would say Rhode Island, I, th I think that, that there's a lack of understanding of the formation of forming a business. And not just that, but the somewhat gatekeeping of said information. And a lot of it does come down to who you know. And so, because of my branding, because I also identify that I too am my branding and that, wow, people, it's not just my, my brand, but like I am a delight. People like me. <laughs> and so that in itself opened a lot of doors for me where I could say like, hey, I don't know how to do this. Like I, I, and even just me, it was literally just being asked to sit on panels a million times and me saying like, yeah, there's not a lot of resources of how to do this. It's like, oh, there's A, B, C, and D. It's like, well, if you had never told me, I would never know this. And so the, there's, there are a lot of things here as far as resources, but they're not um, widely known to a lot of people. Um, I will say for me personally, I am not, there's not many rooms I'm afraid to go into, but yeah, um, for a lot of minorities, not just like, you know, race or race wise, even just gender wise, 
a lot of people don't like to be in rooms that don't have someone who looks like you. Um, I did attend a PWI for undergrad. I went to HBC for grad school. So, and also I was a STEM major, but and so even then MTSG is one of the largest, it is the largest undergrad in the state of Tennessee. And so as a STEM major, like, yeah, majority of my classes were full of white people. I minored in Spanish. Even then I was either the only black woman or a black person in my class. And so being in those spaces are not new to me at all. Um, even in the high school, I we transferred to Evanston my sophomore year of high school. So going from Southside Chicago, where Inglewood particularly is all black, um, like and not even like diasporians. It's not it's not African. There are no Africans in my neighborhood. There were no Caribbean. It is descendants of chattel slaves. We're black. We are African American. And so for me, it, that was my first experience being switched into a space that was uncommon, not just by race, but economic status. And so for me, I, I, it's, I'm not new to that space and how to maneuver that, but it does take practice. And it's not, it's intimidating so much as uncomfortable. And I think that um, learning those spaces and moving past your uncomfortability as being that one black person in the room, being one of few women in that room, it, it does take a lot of practice, but it's learning to get past that space. And so I think for me is also learning that, um, not even learning, it's kind of like, I feel no, I have no problem being myself in any room that I come into. I am a thousand percent from South Chicago. I <laughs> identify that, yeah, in many spaces, I am the bad bitch in the room and I'm aware of that. And so I, I have no problem going to those rooms and you know, it's showing up how I need to as authentically as I choose to be. So, you know, I, I think for me, because I had a professional life plus a business life plus a personal life, um, I don't feel the need to co-switch. And I think that that's a, a fear for some people. It's like, I can't show up as myself because yes, Rhode Island is mostly white. New England is mostly white. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, you know, a lack of cultural competency in some spaces, but that does not negate the fact that in business, outside of your product and your labels, your packaging, and your website, you too, you are your brand. And it is important that you show up as your true self. But that, again, that takes practice. It does take having someone that, you know, I do understand that for me personally, and everyone doesn't take this route, but I do firmly believe that you lift as you rise. So if there are events that are going on or resources, I absolutely share with whoever I need to share it to. I'm like, hey, great girl, did you, did you see this? Did you know about this? And if you choose to come, come. If you choose not to, no. But if I will absolutely share resources. And that's what it comes down to a lot of times. It's just you know, sharing the resources, sharing the knowledge as well. But um, I would not say that from my personal experience, I, don't, I wouldn't say that it's hindered me in any way of forming my business. Yeah, well, it's it's such a such a thorough answer, and I thank you so much for for sharing what your experience was like through and through and through all those different levels of what the experience was like for you and in relating the experience for others um, with whom you've been speaking. I love that you add that that uh, that axiom of um, when you lift, you rise. I think we're going to come back around to that when we're talking about. Uh, community and and uh, lifting others up as you as you do through your business, um, but I want to first ask you about this transition from the the young food science the young future food scientist in you at age twelve making those decisions then going through your education. When did tea enter the picture? You you remind us on your website that people have been coming together around tea for centuries. I'm wondering where your appreciation of tea began and if it was also something that you grew up around or developed an appreciation for as you grew yeah, up? Yeah, I grew up drinking tea. It definitely was not the tea that I make. It was definitely more of like, you know, Lipton or Celeste or Bigelow. So um, like I said, I'm from Chicago, but my family's from down south. So um, Nashville, New Orleans. And so my mom was definitely more on the holistic side of things. Unless, you know, it was absolutely like, you need a prescription something. But most of the time it's like, hey, we drink some tea and take a nap. Um, summertime, there's always iced tea in the fridge. Always, always, always. And it was Lipton. Um, so something that I grew up with. Um, and even in college, my teammates, that was kind of funny. But I would drink hot tea in the blistering hot of Tennessee. <laughs> there every day, even in Grassland, Alabama, I would drink hot tea still. And so it's something that I've always just really enjoyed. And then, um, yeah, I think actually, ironically, when I first had the idea of starting a business, it wasn't loose sleep tea at all. It was actually supposed to be a um, 
sweet tea and cheesecake business, which is incredibly expensive, which is why I never started. If it was if it was expensive then, I can't imagine how expensive it is now with the oh, cost God. of dairy products and everything. It's got to be out of control. <laughs> dairy, there's an egg shortage, and this is yeah, it's a lot going on. Very interesting. So, so was I mean, you are an excellent business person. We should add, at least from my point of view, I think you're an excellent business person. Uh, it Thank shows you. in the business that you've created and you're running. So, a savvy forethought there about uh, about the cost of things. And uh, you, so you mentioned your your own personal, your your family uh, history, the connection to tea that's that's found in the South, especially in those blistering hot summers. Um, and so, when did tea enter the picture for you as a business proposition? Uh, I'm wondering if there was like some creative inspiration. If you picked up on something, if you were sensing something in the culture and the atmosphere, um, because I also know that you have, I wouldn't say like an anti-coffee bias, but I think you are more critical of coffee than maybe the average American like coffee drinker, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering what you were picking up on or sensing or maybe predicting in the, in the culture and the atmosphere when you came up with what became the Blackleaf Tea and Culture Shop. Yes, yeah, so ironically, I'm not anti coffee. I the caffeine from coffee does nothing to here, me. We make room I, for paradoxes <laughs> and everything. It doesn't have to be a dichotomy, right? Nope. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, like the caffeine from coffee does literally nothing. I have no idea what would happen when I was being created, but caffeine from coffee, particularly, is like, oh, people, you know, like I have to have my coffee. I like the flavor of coffee, but it does nothing for me. Um, but for me. It was something that just made sense. It's, again, going back to my roots and my um, my my learnings academically of being in product development. It's okay. A part of that is not just flavor design and making a product. It's the economic part too. So the cost of thing, the marketing, who's your audience, and so having some base knowledge of those things is also really helpful. But knowing like, hey, I can make this dry, lightweight packaged product. I don't need to heat or refrigerate anything. Because it's lightweight, I can ship anywhere in the world that I want to. And there's also not a ton of like health department regulatory pieces to it because it doesn't need to be other than me just washing my hands and my utensils and having to clean workspace. Um, so for me, as a business model, it simply made sense where I can have this, this product alone. It just makes sense and be able to have that. And so the cultural piece of my business, so the name itself, people ask like, oh, what does your business name mean? Like, this not this deep philosophical meaning to my name at all. I'm just, it's just not. It was like, I'm Black, I make tea, and it's a cultural piece. <laughs> the Black Leaf Tea Culture Shop. Um, it's, it's, it's not. Um, and so I chose to add the culture piece in it because when I moved here, in 2017, the first thing that I looked for was the Urban League. Because being from Chicago, going to school down south, it's incredibly active, especially Chicago, incredibly active. So I know I can move somewhere. Um, the Young Black, Young Black Professionals is a subgroup of the Urban League. And so usually I just find the group, they have events, they have mixers, um, like group outings. And so that's really how I meet other people that look like me in those spaces. And I moved to Rhode Island and I was just like, what, what do you mean this inactive? I've never heard of an inactive. <laughs> and so it's like, okay. And the next nearest one is in Boston, but I shouldn't have to drive an hour to be around people that look like me that I can relate to culturally. You know, me asking like, where do you get your hair done? Where do you get your nails done? My skin as a black woman, like these are things that are important to me and culturally that I are important to me. Um, you know, I, there's some things that I can't ask a white coworker about because we we don't have the same needs, and so I think that um, that was really important to me. And so I chose to use the communal traditions of teas and herbs to really create that space, but not just to create a space, but also to amplify those black bees and white voices here in Rhode Island, but also as a whole that did not have that space here. Yeah, and and you write as much uh, on on your website that young black professionals, uh, in particular, and and black folks, kind of like writ large, don't have a lot of spaces inherently in a place like Southern New England. Um, just on the mm -hmm. basis of your your experiences and experiences of others with whom I've spoken, um, and so yeah, I, I I really appreciate that it's it 
the spaces didn't exist. You saw an opportunity, but not just like a, a business savvy opportunity. By the way, thank you for the free education. And <laughs> I'm not going to start a tea company, but you just blew my mind about like lightweight, ship anywhere, low cost of storage. I was like, wow, <laughs> this is like a lesson in capitalism. I wish I had a long time ago, personally, <laughs> but um, respect to you for that. But yeah, you, you mentioned specifically that things like uh, with the Young young Black Professionals mixers and, and your tea talks that you're uh, actively creating and curating and creating um, and welcoming folks into these spaces that as you write, uh, where, where Black pro- professionals in particular can uh, commune and feel free to be yourselves. I think mm-hmm. that's something that, you know, especially as a white guy, I took for granted for so long that really took me a lot of traveling, honestly, which is itself a huge privilege to go to mm-hmm. places in the world where I was a minority um, mm-hmm. and, or just at least not part of like the, the majority group and to feel for the first times, like I'm, th- I'm thinking back to like the first time I went to Northern India and was like the only white person around to feel your exteriority in a place is an, is an incredible lesson. And I thought like, if I moved here, where would I go? And how would I connect with people to feel like myself or at home or like I'm having a, you know, sharing experiences with folks. And I would say like, I would probably look for an expats community, right? Like I'd look for like where Mm -hmm. the Americans hang out to connect with them, to relate, to share stories, like finding someone from Rhode Island, anywhere in the world remains one of the greatest sports I think (laughs) Rhode Islanders have. (laughs) Like you find out you're from Rhode Island and it's everyone's, everyone absolutely loses their mind. Um, And then you find out that you're like probably related, which is just weird. But anyway, my point is creating the spaces that don't exist for people to come together to be able to Mm -hmm. a, like you said, be themselves, um, have those basic like word of mouth conversations. And I can't help but keep thinking back to the, to what we asked you earlier, Amber, about the knowledge, how much knowledge is shared. That's, that's gate kept um, just on the basis of who, you know, even in a really small state where, resources should be more readily available information should mm-hmm. should theoretically flow more freely but there's still such a dependency and i can speak to this from experience such a dependency on who you know helping you to find the information that you need that happens socially it happens culturally but it also happens in a business setting so what have your experiences been like in creating these spaces you know from uh, like your tea talks to to the mixers and networking events um, over recent years and by the way i imagine that there was quite a disruptive Thing that happened called the COVID-19 pandemic um, that might yeah. have posed an obstacle or two. So how has that been unfolding for you? And like, what are the some of the intersections maybe between bringing people together in these spaces and also being an entrepreneur whose product is, you know, kind of meant to bring people together or give them some sort of connection and community? Yeah, it was, it started off great. So my first one was a full house. I hosted it at the Glow Cafe, which is closed now, but it was also a Black woman-owned uh, cafe and juice bar. And so it was, it was full. I was like, okay, we got to find some else to do this because we're about to fall out the door. <laughs> um, so I met a lot of great people there. People was like, oh, I haven't seen you in so, so long. But against Rhode Island, everyone kind of knew everybody. But um, yeah, it was great. And I had to moved it from the Glow Cafe to uh, 148 Lounge on uh, South Providence. Um and so the second one that I had was actually where I hosted my first ever tea talk. And I chose to do it at the mixers because that was meant to be a black only space because I didn't want anyone to feel the need to mince words or having to over explain themselves because someone that wasn't black and was like, I don't know how they're going to take this, but I'm going to room with my peers. But even with that, it, the tea talks were never meant to be a, a woo kumbaya moment, circle moment. This is to, um, you know, express yourself, but also challenge ideals because that's how growth happens. That's how progression happens. You can't have growth without some, um, some, some, um, some possible pushback because it, you know, even within the diaspora, because when we look alike, doesn't mean we, we have the same thoughts and agree on the same things because we have different experiences because also in Rhode Island is very different from me being in Chicago is that you have so many different cultures here within, within the, the black uh, diaspora as well. Where, you know, the term that, you know, black people are not a monolith, which is very true, even for myself. I have never been asked more in my life, where are you from? And then I saw moved here. And then they're like, I'm from Chicago. And they're like, oh, no, where are your parents from? It's like, my family's from Nashville. And I was like, oh, you're American. Like, 
and, you know, it's like taking a back of never being called American as a black person by another black person. But yeah, like they, they know like, oh, I'm Haitian or I'm Liberian. It's like, I'm just, I'm quote unquote, just black. Um, so even in those spaces where you have culturally may look similar skin tone wise, but culturally here we have extremely different experiences. Me being from Chicago, coming to Rhode Island, people are kind of born and raised extremely different experiences. I went to both a PWI and an HBCU. Very different experiences from many people here where they've only gone to school, many have only gone to school in state, which, you know, is all PWIs. So it's a very different experience here. And I think that that's what makes these spaces so beautiful is because you have so many different experiences. You have things to share and things that people may not have thought of or reconsidered because it's not your own experience. And so I think in a conversation of not just my events and the, the spaces for Black people, but just the whole, and DEI as a whole, a lot of it comes down to respecting some of those experiences, one, but also acknowledging that your experiences are yours. It's unique. And so you can't just base your entire ideal off of your experiences because it is as yours and yours alone. And so how do you have empathy and acknowledge the fact that someone's experience is different from yours and respecting that. And I think that's really important outside the spaces I create when it comes to just people <laughs> acknowledging that we are not the same, even though we may even culturally race, excuse me, culturally, but race wise, that we have different experiences because we come from different places. Many of us have, have, have different backgrounds, um, whether it be, you know, cultural, sexuality, uh, religion, but you know, acknowledging, being able to listen to someone else's experience and actually start to question, you know, your thought process and using that to be progressive. And that was why that having that space was so important to me and having it as just a black space is really important to me. Um, so the very first one we had, actually, the conversation topic was what black men need and not what, what did you need? <laughs> and so having that conversation, I actually started it by having, it's talking directly to the black women in the room. It's like, hey, this is not a space for you to be combative. I encourage you to listen to what they're saying. You can question some of what they're saying, but I need you to understand that this is their experience. And we, you know, we can, like, we ask questions, question their questioning or question their ideas also. But this is not a bashing session. This is, oh, this is a learning moment from both sides because what they see as a gender. Is different from what we see, and we can verbalize that in a productive way where both sides are learning. And I think because there traditionally has been such a, a, a gap of understanding between Black men and Black women, and how we can use this space to get a better understanding of each other and what our actual needs are, and how we define that, and how we support each other in that space. And so it was really great conversations. So I've had that one. I've had some talking about like sexual liberation. That the title actually was "Who You Call the Hope." <laughs> you know, the, how do you talk about sexual liberation where, you know, um, how women are portrayed in certain ways and how something is not true. Like, you know, this is not 1955. I have autonomy in my body. I can do what I want safely. Um, you know, having the conversations that, you know, are a bit uncomfortable. Uh, the, one, the, the last one I had in person was um, Black Enough. Because in the black community, again, they are there's so many spaces in which we differ within our our race group and our diaspora, whether it be, you know, if you are people may consider you less black if you're from the suburb, if you've never had a woman before, if you have both parents. And so kind of having the conversation of how and why we associate so much of our blackness to trauma. And you the more trauma you experience, the more black you are, and questioning that. And how we dismantle that idea. And so these are really important conversations to have. Again, and all the thought to um, challenge each other's uh, experiences, uh, not experiences, but challenging our ideals by sharing our experiences and then having the end of that conversation of like, okay, how do we use this to go forward and progress? Yeah. But and yeah. Yeah, what, what I'm hearing, Amber, is like the thing that happens in person when you're able to bring people together and to facilitate these conversations, these the sharing experiences, and also mm -hmm. as you do, I'm hearing you say like, we're going to put a couple rules in place, not to be authoritarian, but to like have some guideposts, like 
challenge yourself to think about this in this way. Think about this from their experience. Mm -hmm. What I'm hearing you um, describe is something that I think we all lack in our social media silos, right? Like those, mm-hmm. these kinds of experiences don't happen when we're on Twitter or on Instagram. We can find people and kind of learn from them. But I think by and large, the combative nature that we we are all familiar, all too familiar with in social media and on the internet nowadays, and maybe in, by extension, you know, 24-hour news services and like this kind of contrived, constant contrived like debate and competition of, of ideas gets really unhealthy and people get siloed and kind of like entrenched in their defensive postures and try to yeah. win, right? But and, that defense, and- okay, but yeah, that defense, again, it comes from not acknowledging, you defensive because what someone says does not match your personal experience and right. you're not thinking outside of your personal experience. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's really where it comes from and where people have a hard time removing themselves because when things happen to you, it does feel personal because it is personal. But also, again, acknowledging that your experience is unique to you, and that's not the only experience. Yeah, and I, I do. I, my personal belief is that it's something. It's easier to empathize. I think when we're together in a room with people, as uncomfortable as it can be, uh, as challenging as it can feel, something that, of course, we all kind of lost. And at least speaking personally, again, I think I'm still trying to like acclimatize myself to being back in rooms with people and just remembering mm-hmm. what it's like to have these experiences. But, you know, as we, as we keep an eye on the clock, Amber, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I also want to talk a little bit more about your tease specifically um, mm-hmm. because, because that's where the magic happens also in the cup, as well as in the rooms where you're bringing people together. So let's talk a little bit about like the creative side, because listeners to the show know that I'm a big nerd for, for creativity in general. Yeah. And I know that you personally design and formulate all of your tea blends. We went over your history, mm-hmm. all the science behind it. Uh, but it also strikes me as being such a creative process and also something I know so little about. Can you tell us a little bit about what goes into crafting a tea blend, maybe where you source inspiration from? Is it is it much less artistic and woo-woo and than, than I'm imagining it could be? And is it much more brass tacks and business and, and cost of things? Or is there a, a beautiful harmony between the two? No, it was initially definitely more woo. It's becoming more tax bracket and not tax bracket, like, like cost efficient now. <laughs> now being Understand three years, and it's like, that was fun. However, this all, everything costs something. So you can't keep doing, like, going the way I've been doing. But initially, yes. So I do consider myself a creative in the sense that I curate an experience in a sip. And I think this is what's so beautiful about being a culinary creative is the storytelling and the experience this through a bite or a sip. Um, and so for me, I do try to create the blends in a way that invokes a feeling. Um, there's certain um, kind of, and some of them like, yeah, there's a, we're going to sip it. There are certain like, core memories that come when I have some of my blends. Um, but ultimately, my goal is to create an experience. And so some of them may start with ideas. Like, okay, I want something tart. I want something more free. I want something calming. And so um, the one I actually have um, is actually, oh, it's my home called Shy Town. It's a black pepper chocolate chai. So they all have different ways that I start. And all starts with just, just an idea. And honestly, it's just a lot of trial and error. It's just like, okay, what flavor do I want? What kind of goes along with this? And how do I make this? And the real challenge for me is because at the time, all my blends are natural. So I don't use any flavoring at all. And that's the hard part. <laughs> because I legit have people like, oh, you have like a salted caramel? I'm like, there's no herb or tea that tastes like salted caramel. So no. Um, but and that's, that's the hard part where, yeah, it's easier to use a flavoring and just spray. And you just, it's, that's easy. But to actually make something with just the natural plant, that's hard. <laughs> Um, and so that is the actual trial. The challenge is a lot of trial and error. Um, it really just starts an idea or a feeling that I want to invoke and just move it from there. Um, and then comes the business part of like sourcing and like find the most cost efficient one. Like, can I buy this much and get this much off? Um, a lot of my blends, if you look at the 12, 13 that I have available, some of them have similar flavor ingredients. So, like, I have a few that have chamomile, I have a few that have orange peel because. Yeah, it's cost efficient for me to have more than one blend use more than one uh, a single ingredient compared to like no I buy this ingredient this is just for this that's expensive <laughs> and again my business is only three years old and 
and this is all out of my pocket. I don't have investors. I've only gotten one grant um, in three years. So that's a really interesting part of the pandemic where um, my business skyrocketed in the pandemic. So I couldn't apply for PPP because I'd never paid myself. So it's like, what paycheck are you protecting? <laughs> um, and then I made too much money in heavy quotations to actually show a need of assistance due to COVID. So it's like, this is a growing business that just started the year before the pandemic, but it grew so much in the pandemic. But it's like, well, I don't see where you need assistance because you made money. Um, so it was a really strange space where like people were getting grants and loans left and right. And I got not a single one. Uh, I did get one a little bit later on because I could show demand. Like I needed, I needed um, funding because of the higher demand. When the pandemic, I like, yeah, I needed more for ingredient money for ingredients because yeah, I needed as because of the pandemic, I made more sales, which means I need more ingredients. So they just showed that was helpful. But um, yeah, so now being curious, and I uh, left my job at Brown last December, and I was full time in my business for about six months. I actually saved money, so that's one good part for me in the pandemic was I was work remotely so I saved enough money for six months to leave Brown eventually. And um this was the absolute worst year. <laughs> this was a really hard year. And so I started working again in July. So now I work full time again plus my business. And so we're just taking the time right now to prep for next year. So I think while sales were down, which is across the board for everybody this year, um I did a really great job in just learning and making connections. And so um, being able to, in my mind, like offset those kind of things have been really helpful. But yeah, right now it's just um, my priority is cutting from 14 blends to five signature blends. And then everything else will just rotate as seasonal items just because, yeah, everything's expensive right now and packaging is not cheap. So, uh, but right now I order at 100 packs for packaging or 100 per SKU. And so my average cost per packaging is about three forty five a pack. Where if I w- was able to drop to five and order a thousand at a time, it drops from three forty five to sixty seven cents. So I, <laughs> yeah. So it's like you know, I think that people are really entertained by my business, which I should prove this year. Like, yeah, I was on magazine covers. I made lists. I've done left awards left and right, but it didn't convert to sales. And I think the other issue is the really worst part where people feel like, oh, I don't need to support you because really someone else because because according to social media, you look like you're doing great. But if you assume someone's supporting me and everyone else is assuming that as well, that means no one is. And that's pretty much what happened this year. It's like, okay, I have to go back to work because I've exhausted my six months of saving. It legit came to the pennies at six months. And it's like, okay, I have to go back to work because I have rent today and no one's helping me at all either. So um every I own a pretty loan. So every cheese blended by hand myself, packed by hand, all, all the social media posts, emails, that's me. I did have some help before this year about to cut costs because I had to I had to do this my own, but I was on my own this year. Um so it was a very interesting year, but definitely helpful and and helpful going forward in planning. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that with us and and thank you for for telling your story and and I definitely relate to I mean first of all like the high highs and the low lows. I, a dirty secret that I had was uh, a dirty secret that I had. A dirty secret that I I heard from people, not that I maintained with people um throughout the pandemic, especially in 2020, especially like a lot of life coaches, small business owners, the dirty secret was we're making out like gangbusters. And I just think it was like, there was so much money flying around because people were so anxious and also there was nothing to do, which isn't yeah. just the work that's being done or the products that were out there, mm-hmm. but the costs hadn't caught up yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were, people were spending money because they had fewer costs. All of a sudden they weren't commuting, mm-hmm. they were stuck at home. They wanted distraction. They wanted support different businesses. Right. And then 2021 came around and continues you know, the economic and financial situation for so many people continues today, where that's the only conversation I'm having with with entrepreneurs and small business owners now. Meanwhile, these huge corporate giants are making out like gangbusters. Everybody else, like the top 1% is making out like gangbusters now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of adjustment to be had. But And I appreciate you sharing that about uh, your experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I 
my business, I more than doubled every year in the pandemic. So in 2019, I first started, I started April. So April to December, I made like $5,200, just like getting my feet wet. And then in 2020, I closed at 32 grand. Last year, I closed at 84. So it was, it was, I was like, okay, we'll bet I can go and do this full time. But also, again, my background is in science, not business. So learning to work off of numbers and not emotions where I had no idea how to operate full-time as an entrepreneur, not just running a business, but how to be a full-time entrepreneur. And that was something that I think also not backfired. I just didn't know. And I had no one guiding me on how to do that either. So like now I am planning two quarters ahead. What does that look like? How do you plan these things out? Partnerships, product placement. Um, how is the market shifting? How are your consumers shifting? And that's, I think this year, particularly in 2022, that everyone had a hard time with because there was no answer. No one knows, the name it now, what's the holiday season. No one knows what the health consumers are doing and we are all confused. This is like, you know what? We will see. Everything is right. Let me target this sales drop. Um, one of my friends works for PepsiCo and he was like, we have an entire team of strategists that we pay very well and they can't figure it out. This is a power 25 multi-billion dollar company. So do I expect you, whose business is three, it's just you to figure this out? No. And I think that was something that as a business owner, I was really frustrated for me being as endlessly, oh, why do you think it's now? I'm like, I don't fucking know. No one knows. You expect me to figure it out for you? I don't know. Um, so yeah, I think it was a really interesting year. It's really stressful year. Like I... I, you know, it, it got to my points in. I had a car wreck in May and I, I felt like I'm not fully recovered. And so the answer to the knowledge also it was a traumatic as you me and being able to um, acknowledge that I am still recovering from this year that's still going also. And so I think when it comes to entrepreneurship, beyond the business piece, we don't talk very much about the holistic sides of it also. The fact that beyond this entity of a business, there's a person behind there. And as a small business, you know, some people have a partner. Me, it's just me. So when it came down to six months and I'm like, shit, how am I going to pay rent? I didn't have a husband or a partner or whatever to fall back on. It's just me. And so um, this was a really, really stressful year. I, guess I, do, I do feel like I'm recovering now, months and months later, but... Yeah, people don't talk about that. I think people, they have a very monolithic idea of what entrepreneur is, what they should be. And um, I, I don't follow that line at all. I enjoy, I, I should like working full time along with my business. I like that my title's a director. I, I like that my corporate growth as well. I like paying my rent. I like it. This hair gets done every six weeks. These nails, every three to four. I My skin does not come clear with just juices and berries. This requires chemicals. It's like I, like I have a certain lifestyle. At 31, I'm a grown ass woman. I live a certain lifestyle. I tend to maintain it at all costs. And it's actually improving from that. And my business in itself does not support that. And so, and people ask me, why don't you go back to work? Why do you go to work? <laughs> do you not have bills to pay? I like going on vacations too. I have to put gas in my car. I know it's just, it's very interesting that the, the standards that um, people place on. Uh, entrepreneurs, especially small businesses, like this is not a, a Fortune 500 <laughs> entity with a whole warehouse full of people running around. Like this is not a, and also like this is a solid three year old, not a twenty, not a ten. This is a, this is a toddler still. All right, yeah, and well, it's moving well, Amber, exactly just, like a toddler. That's right. <laughs> yep, teetering, tottering, falling over. Mm -hmm. Been there, still there. Yep. You know, I went. I, mm -hmm. I'm back. I'm back in graduate school myself. We could talk about this for hours. Nice. I want to be conscious of your time, but I went back to graduate school last year, and I'm going to be 37 in January and shifting gears. And yeah, going back to be a mental health uh, counselor now, um, and finding the connections. But it's also yeah, it's like. How long do I, can I do this? How long can I do this on my own? Yeah. Do I really, do I want to do it on my own? And there's so many myths, misconceptions, and idealizations mm -hmm. in American culture about like being self-employed, mm -hmm. being your own boss. And I think, uh, you know, we all have to figure it out for, for ourselves. There's, there's yeah. the story, it story changes. Yeah. Also, I have plenty of time to say you're fine, but it does come down to personal, but not just, and then for me also, it's not just me having a good business, it's creating the life that I want for myself. 
I'm not super high maintenance, but no, I have no intentions of working past 55. That's because I have a Roth IRA that put money into every month. <laughs> I have a life, a very healthy life insurance policy. Again, I am working now so I can live very comfortably in my future. And I think that for some people, they just focus on the right now. And that's perfectly fine if that works for you. Me personally, again, this is a certain lifestyle that I live, that I plan on maintaining. But also, like, I, I, I don't, even in my professional life, like I said, like, yeah, I enjoy my title as a director. But it does not define who I am at all by any means. Even me having a business, it doesn't define who I am in any means. And so when it comes down to it, it does come down to what I want in the lifestyle, the life and the lifestyle that I create for myself and how I choose to show up in whatever space I choose to show up in and whatever amber I choose to show up in also. And then that whatever that is, that's also okay. If I'm having a down day and that's true, that's really me. And I think that that's, you know, something I talked about in the panels a couple of weeks ago. It's like when you have these moments, you need to be in these moments, especially as an entrepreneur. People expect you just like, like, you know, by power through and struggle through. And people kind of put these like smiles in their face and it's just like, you know, everything's fine. But you need to sit in those spaces because it's true. It's real. That smile on your face is not real. And it may be covering up, but that emotion is still there. And it may not come in the moment, but it will manifest in many different ways. And that can be very dangerous. But for me, like, I, I crashed a window and I, people are like, you felt good. No, I legit went to a daydream and my brain left me and I just woke up in the median and the driver's side was completely gone. And I heard and felt none of it. I've never, like I said, for me, I can drive, my goodness, lived in the South. So driving home was minimum 12, 10, 12 hours. So me driving four hours was nothing. It's just like, you know, it was stress induced. And it was wild where, yeah, again, me working full time, I have good health insurance now where when I had state insurance, I couldn't get checked up because my physician that I had before when I was working at Brown did not take state insurance and I couldn't find anyone to take new patients. So I never got checked out. I never got screened for anything. I couldn't. And so even when it comes to quality of life, that's why it's really important for me to have that balance and not even just my... Stress-wise, for me personally, I have to be able to compartmentalize. I have to have a work life, business life, a personal life, and they do not intertwine. And so for me, that's really important. But again, it's creating the life that you want for yourself, creating those boundaries that not, you know, you don't just sit by the people, but you respect for yourself as well. And being true to yourself. If this, you know, if you want to dive in and be full time in your business, go ahead. If that doesn't work for you, that's also okay. It's, uh, it's just, again, social media, American culture as a whole, she creates this facade of what things are supposed to be, but that does not work for many people or most. I think this is just it's a facade. That's exactly what it is. It's a facade. Amber Jackson is the owner and chief operating officer of the Black Leaf Tea and Culture Shop. She's currently based out of Providence, Rhode Island. You can find her and her teas at theblackleaftea.com. Amber, thank you so, so much for joining us. You're, you're an inspiration in so many ways, um, but I'm a big fan of you and everything that you're sharing, creating, and putting out into the world. So thank you for joining us on The New Story Is. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, share this episode with a friend or leave us a rating and review, which goes a long way to helping other listeners find and enjoy our show. Until next time, I'm Dave Ursillo. This has been The New Story Is. Bye for now.